All right, let's get noses in Bibles because I want to give you some self-discovery tools here about what Bible study looks like and how it works. And here in Revelation 3, we're going to be in verses 7 through 13 today. Uh, So read along with me, if you would, uh, verses 7 through 13 here in Revelation 3. This is to the church in Philadelphia. It says this, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one, excuse me, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Verse 8, he says, I know your works. This is Jesus talking. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Verse 11, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lots of cool stuff to show you here. Let's jump back at verse 7. It starts with a quote. Uh, probably in most of your Bibles, there's just a little quote there, two, uh, two little lines. It starts with a quote there at the beginning. In verse 7 it says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. This is the sixth of seven letters. There are seven letters here in this part of Revelation. We've got one more to go, so, so hang in there. It says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the True One. Those are titles, the Holy One, the True One. Holy, true, naming Him as such. And those are titles to establish what comes next in the text. It establishes what comes next in the text because only Jesus can do what comes next in the text because only He is holy and true. Only someone with full knowledge and absolute truth beyond searching out, as the Psalms tell us. Uh, Only someone with that kind of knowledge and truth can do what comes next. So it says, uh, it says, who has the keys, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. In other words, Jesus alone has the key to open and to shut the door of salvation. So turn with me back to Isaiah 22 for a minute here. Isaiah 22, 20 through 22. This is a cool example of something that's all over Revelation. We're going we're gonna to take what's in Revelation and see where it comes from in the Old Testament. So Isaiah 22, I'll look it up with you so it'll take a second here. Isaiah 22, verses 20 through 22. Revelation, and we haven't done a whole lot of this yet, but we'll continue to as we go through the, the whole Bible, the whole, the whole book of Revelation. There are tons of places where it has little snippets of phrases or sometimes full quotes um, or allusions to uh, a metaphor or picture or something used in the Old Testament. This is all over Revelation. This is one of those uh, that is used by Revelation to make its point. So long story short, this passage in Isaiah uh, tells us how a man named Eliakim Eliakim acted as God's representative to help, uh, to help lead the people of Jerusalem. And ultimately he fails. But follow along in Isaiah. This is what he says, Isaiah 20. 
22, I'm sorry. Isaiah 22, verses 20 through 22. It says this, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him. God was taking the authority from somebody else and putting it on this man Eliakim. And I will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. God has taken the authority away from this other representative, this other steward of God's authority, and putting it on Eliakim. And here's the key verse, verse 22. He's giving it to Eliakim. I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. Ultimately, this guy here in Isaiah, Eliakim, he failed to steward God's authority. He failed to do the job because, because only God can fully and finally steward, be responsible for his authority to judge. Only God can determine who's in and who's out. And so the power to judge is God's alone. It's Christ alone. And so, so jump back to Revelation 3, 7 here. <clears throat> jump back to Revelation 3, 7. It says, the one who is holy and true has the key of David. The ability to open and to shut the way of ultimate salvation and judgment. You and I don't determine who's in and out. This Eliakim guy in Isaiah couldn't. His previous steward of the responsibility for Jerusalem could not. And only Christ does. And that's the point that Revelation is making here. You and I don't determine. Nobody determines who's in and out. Only he does. Only Christ does. And here's another way to say it here with the phrasing of this, this open and shut thing with the keys. Jesus is unstoppable. His will will be done. That's part of why we sing songs today about crowning him king, about his sovereignty, about his lordship. You cannot open and shut this door we're talking about here. Only Jesus can. And only he will determine how and when that's going to happen. Which, which, which sounds like, duh, clearly only God does that. But think about how often we functionally act as ultimate judge in the lives of people. Think about how often we actually usurp God's authority to say, this door is open and shut, and we functionally judge people as if we were God all the time. So, so in other words, <laughs> stop trying to be God. Stop, stop trying to do what only He can. And this plays out in tons of ways in our lives. We don't have all the details on exactly what final judgment will look like because we don't carry the same kind of set of keys that He does. So, Revelation is teaching us to get our priorities in order and get clear on your place. It sounds elementary, but, but in our lives functionally, this is a hard truth for us. We're really pretty sure that we are Lord. Not just of our lives, but of everybody else's. And we function that way constantly. That's part of why marriages are, are divisive and, and fractured and relationships are, are difficult because we want to be Lord of everybody. <laughs> Your place isn't to be the judge with a capital J. Your place, your place is to spread and water the seed of the gospel. 
It does no good to post on Facebook what everybody else on the planet already knows is the problem with the world. If it's anything other than the gospel. It does no good to tell everybody on the planet what's wrong with legislation this or politics that. You're just moving around pieces on the chessboard and trying to judge with a capital J. Revelation says, among other things, get to your business of witnessing to who is really king. That's part of what Christ meant in Matthew 16 when he told Peter, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. God is going to make the growth happen of the gospel. And Peter's job was to cast seeds. The early church's job was to cast seeds and water them. God will make the growth happen. When he told Peter that in Matthew 16, he said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. He wasn't telling Peter that he and then the church were going to be ultimate judge. He was telling Peter and he was telling us that our role, our place in life is to communicate the gospel. In the same way that Eliakim was called to responsibly steward, take care of the people of Jerusalem. The key to us is the message of the good news of Christ's coming. That's the key that we hold. The message of Christ's coming back. And in those places where that Eliakim guy and where Peter and where, where we fail, God will do the rest we can't in the lives of people through His Holy Spirit and through hearts. So stop manipulating everything. Stop being ultimate judge. In a sense, chill out. <laughs> and I'm saying this as much to myself as any of you. Chill out with the man-made system that we create of who's in and who's out. We often act like if you've got an ecthus on your car and you homeschool your kids and you don't cuss, then, then you're in, which is ridiculous. <laughs> that kind of stuff is, is self-righteousness that has nothing to do with the heart of God for sinners. We spend a lot of time, a lot of time, talking about others and determining who's in and out. And when we do that, we are no different than the Pharisees that Jesus chides in Matthew 23 when He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Bottom line, you and I are not judge and jury, and woe to us if we shut the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, in the faces of people. So chill out with the constant gossip and the self-righteousness and the ugly talk and the slander that's about judging others and making sure that we know that we're in. Because what we do when we, when we talk about others like that and we, we continue to judge in ways that we have no conception about. I mean, let's just talk practically. When we say something about somebody else because, well, she didn't do this, or he's doing that, or <laughs> we hardly truly know the context whatsoever. You never know what's going on in somebody else's life. You really don't. And when we do that, we act like judge and jury for God. It's selfish. It's prideful. It's us in charge. It's us as Lord. And that is not our place. Our place 
And this is the big idea today. Our place, three words, plain and simple, is to keep God's word. Our place is to keep God's word. Let's see where we get this from the text here. Look at verse 8. We'll keep up verse 8 here for a while. It says, I know your works. I know your works. This is Jesus speaking. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Uh, Another way, probably a better translation, is to say that Christ opens the door. It's sort of weird to say he sets an open door before you. It just means he opens the door. And notice that Christ is the one who opens the door. Again, Christ alone can open this door. And Christ alone makes our works good works. We'll talk about that in a little more here. In other words, the good works are, are only good if they're from the inside out, ushering forth from the presence of God in a reborn believer. Works are only good if they come from the presence of God in us. So let me show you where we get this. This is sort of nerdy, so listen carefully. I'll go a little bit slowly. (laughs) Um, You're not going to get this kind of stuff with happy, clappy TV preachers who smile more than they actually preach. So in the original text, all of verse 8, all of verse 8 is intended to be one long, big sentence that is interrupted with this phrase, behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. That's sort sort of a parenthetical phrase here. So in other words, it reads like this. I know your works. And then sort of parenthetically, uh, as a reminder, Philadelphian believers, he's saying, behold, I've set before you an open door. I have set before you an open door, he says, which no one is able to shut, meaning them, meaning you, meaning anyone. And then it picks up the I know thing again. It says, I know that you have but little power. In other words, the, the works and keeping his word and not denying his name, the things that are listed there, are made possible because the door is open. This parenthetical statement about the door being open is an emphasis on Christ's opening the door as the place from which good works come. In other words, the the, the door isn't open because of their good works. Their good works come from having walked through the door that Christ opens. And this door is the entrance to the kingdom of God, entered by hearing and by keeping God's word. Our big idea, keep God's word. That's how it's entered. So does, so does this mean, Scott, that we are robots led through the door by the tractor beam of Jesus calling us through? Uh, no, no, we participate by hearing and responding to the gospel. But good works Good works post-receiving the gospel, after receiving the gospel, after responding to it. Good works, and that's for most of us in this room, after responding to the gospel, good works come from, and this is not a minor point, they come from, and in fact we should probably call them godly works instead of just good works. They come from a heart that hears and keeps the word of God. That's where good works come from. Not just these words on this page but the truth that comes from God's heart. We're going to sing later on today a a song called Hosanna where it has these words that say, break my heart for what breaks yours. Break my heart for what breaks yours. By, By... participating in who we are as a body, by being held accountable to growth in Christ, by getting your nose in the Bible, by, by hearing the Word of God in your life, you can have your heart broken so that good works will usher forth from Him in us. 
So godly works come from a heart that hears and keeps God's Word. And that's what marked the Philadelphian believers here. There's no, there's no uh, negative in this letter. He goes straight to commendation. Unlike most of the other letters, there's no need to repent here. He's saying, good job, Philadelphian believers. They are marked by keeping God's word. Look again at verse 8. It says this. Let's look at the Philadelphians a little bit. It says, I know that you have, this is verse 8, I know that you have but little power. This refers to at least having little earthly power, especially within the context of their city. Um, There probably weren't very many Christians there. But it also means that their lack of numbers probably meant that their witness in that city was not as great, was not as effective as they would like it to be. So they had little power. And yet, at the same time, he says, and yet you have kept my word, you've kept my word and not denied my name. What does it mean to, to keep God's word? I think here in general terms, it just means to follow his teaching, to obey his commands. One translator says to be faithful to the message that that Jesus walked into this church and he looked at these Philadelphian believers and he said, good job, you have been faithful to my message. So let me just ask you simply, When you wake up in the morning, is, is faithfulness to God's message your goal for your life? Is keeping true to God's commands for your life the thing that sets the agenda when you get out of bed in the morning? Simply put, is holding tightly, is, is keeping firm grasp on the truth and the commands of God an agenda for your life? When someone else looks at you, how you conduct your time, how you spend your money, how you speak, do they look at you and they say, he keeps God's word? Does, does the total of your life, the total sum of your life put together, does somebody look at that and, 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 they, and they look at you and they say, she keeps God's word, keeps it, clings to it tightly? Or, or how about this? <laughs> In these letters, in the reality about life that is being revealed to us in this book, in the reality about life that is being revealed to us in this book, it isn't some other believer or non-believer looking at you asking this question. It is the risen Christ from Revelation 1 looking at you and me with eyes that pierce soul and spirit. And he is the one taking stock of your faithfulness to steward his message. Are you hearing that? Jesus is the one who is taking stock in our faithfulness and fidelity to hold his message as the primary focus of our witness. Let me say it this way. If you're not living your life as a reflection back to God, if you're not living as if God's the audience of your life, then you're in for sad, frustration, painful kind of life. Because living for everybody else's applause and for the praise of men is a dead end. It is God's truth and His Word that set the agenda for our lives. Now, 
<laughs> because that is what marked the Philadelphian church, because that's what marked these believers, there are numerous promises that are made here. Uh, this rest of this passage, basically from 9 on, is basically Christ telling them the promises that they will enjoy for their faithfulness to God's word. Look at verse 9 here. It says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. They will learn that I have loved you. Jews would, would hear this verse in Revelation 3.9 and they would hear that phrase, they will learn that I have loved you. And they would know that it refers to Deuteronomy 7, if you want to write that down. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. Uh, it's a famous passage where, where God calls the Jews His chosen people, calls them a people that are holy and set apart, calls them a treasured possession. And it says, it says that all of this happens in Deuteronomy, them being called a treasured possession and being chosen. All of that happens, it says, because I love you. Because the Lord loves you, it says. But here, in Revelation 3, Jesus is saying that these Philadelphian Christians who have little power compared to their Jewish neighbors, he is saying that they will submit themselves before you and they will learn that I have loved you. This is one of the promises. Another translation of the word uh, learn here, by the way, is the word recognize. So when it says there, in verse 9, they will learn that I have loved you. It's like saying they will recognize it. They will recognize that, um, that I love you. So don't worry, haters will recognize. The promises keep coming. Verse 10 says this, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, which probably means maybe a couple things. It uh, means at least what Jesus taught, what he verbally taught them in the Gospels about patient endurance. And it may also mean that there was this tradition that began to develop in the early church of counting their witness as viable and true insofar as it reflected God's witness in Christ on the cross. There was a tradition that developed that their own witness was counted as legit based on whether or not it accorded with the kind of perseverance to the cross that Christ made. So they lived sort of incarnational, embodied Jesus' lives that imitated Christ's patient endurance. So because that was what marked them, because they kept God's word about patient endurance, keep reading verse 10. It says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now we come to the first controversial text. This is one of the main uh, controversies in Revelation based on just a few texts, actually not, not a lot. But uh, before I tell you uh, once and for all what it actually means, uh, let me just point out a few things from the text here. Uh, notice just some things about the text itself in verse 10. It says this, I will keep you. Uh, this is similar verbiage, similar way of speaking as used earlier in the passage uh, in verses 8 and then also here in 10 where it says that they kept his word. They kept it. They clung to it. They, they, they had it close. Um, witness, by the way, is the main theme in all these letters. Uh, we'll talk about that a little more next week. Verse 8 says, you have kept 
my word. And here in verse 10, it says, because you have kept my word. Then it says, I will keep you. Because you were faithful, rest assured, he is saying, that I will be faithful to you. Next, notice that it says, from the hour of trial that is coming. From the hour of trial that is coming. Uh, This isn't a statement about the timing as we think of timing. Uh, We live in a world of clocks and watches and and everyone basing their day on a a quantitative time, a a measured kind of time, measurable time. Um, But here in Revelation, and and, and often in, in the Bible in general, time and numbers are often used qualitatively to tell the kind of time instead of the actual duration of time. So this is just saying here that God will keep them as His beloved people in that day, in that time, in that era, in that trial when it comes. A couple other things to note here. It says, the trial is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth there in that uh, last third of the verse. This phrase where it says, those who dwell on the earth is used throughout Revelation uh, to speak of unbelievers and ungodly idolaters. These are the bad guys, those who dwell on earth. Uh, And there continues to be this distinction made clearly between those who dwell on earth and those who are conquerors who live in heaven, who live with God in heaven. Now, the fun part, the controversy of verse 10. The main question for this verse here is what is the nature of God keeping believers from the hour of trial? What does that mean when it says it in this verse? There are many, uh, probably most in fact, who believe that this text is saying that God will take believers away from the tribulation and the trial spoken of here. Uh, Believers will not have to go through this hour of trial. Um, That idea is taken from this and frankly just a couple other places in Scripture. There's not really a lot of support for this view in terms of numbers of texts. Um, And we're not going to look at all those because um, we don't have time to look at them all. Uh, I wanted to show you what I think this is saying. And uh, we'll have plenty of time to debate one another later if you'd like. So marshal your arguments, Bible nerds. Um, I think that this text and numerous others in Scripture, uh, even in Revelation, are saying that God will keep us, meaning God will remain faithful to us to keep us as his loved ones. Remember that text way back in Deuteronomy. Uh, He's going to keep us as his treasured possession. God will remain faithful to us as the other side of us remaining faithful to him. God will keep us faithful, will, will keep us by remaining faithful to his promises. And here's the key word, not by taking us out of the trial, but by keeping us through the trial. In other words, I think that biblically to keep one from the hour of trial doesn't mean to keep them out of the trial. Jesus never promised us a rose garden and he nowhere promises us in the rest of scripture to be kept from or spared from persecution or hardship or trial. In fact, the basic teaching of Scripture is you'd better be ready to die 
the basic teaching of Scripture is you'd better be prepared to lose it all this side of heaven, if need be, for the sake of Christ, so that the glory and reward of knowing Him is something you could die for. That's the basic teaching of Scripture. So that, that, that's why <laughs> happy, clappy TV preaching feels good for a moment. But it's not going to prepare you to go to the cross like Jesus. To be kept from the trial is to be kept through the trial. God will shield His unbelievers from His wrath in the last day. Yes. And I believe that He will keep them through the trial. And that's what's being communicated here. Let me show you a few places where I get this. Look at Revelation 6, 9 through 11. Just a couple pages over there. Revelation 6, 9 to 11. This is when the Lamb opens the fifth seal. There are seven seals. Uh, We'll talk about those when the time comes. Uh, Many, by the way, believe this is after the tribulation has begun. And it says this, starting in verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Now, these souls could have been kept out of tribulation in the sense of taken out of, but keep reading. Verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? There's that phrase for uh, the unbelievers, the ungodly idolaters, those who dwell on the earth. Verse 11, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Wait a while until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. That's the rest of us. Then it says this, here's the kicker. These are those who are kept through the trial. They were to be killed as they themselves had been. It's right there in verse 11. They were each given a white robe, told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. Those who were waiting, for whom they were waiting were to be killed as they themselves had had been. A couple more scriptural examples. Turn to Revelation 2.10. Turn back to Revelation 2.10. We didn't point this out earlier, but we talked about this a couple other times. Uh, In these seven letters, there's this, uh, what we call chiastic structure. It's the the shape of an X. Uh, The first one corresponds with the last one. The second one corresponds with this one today. And then there are three in the middle that are sort of uh, similar and yet different. <laughs> so Revelation 2.10, we said that this was a parallel, the church at Smyrna and the church at Philadelphia. Revelation 2.10 says this, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Again, by the way, numbers are usually uh, qualitative, telling us the kind of time. Um, telling us the kind and the basic extent, not the duration or the exact time. Um, and I can defend this, by the way, from Revelation 1.1, where the word show in Revelation 1.1, the very first verse, is the verb form of sign or symbol. So Revelation is a picture book. Revelation is a picture book. It's not a roadmap. So 10 days here probably just means a short time or soon. And it says, so soon you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life believers 
are never in Scripture promised to be kept out of trials, but to be kept through. And then all of a sudden, some folks, and it's okay to hold this view, frankly. I mean, you can be a Christian and hold this view. Some folks believe that all of a sudden now here in Revelation, we're going to be kept out of that uh, in a way that's different than the rest of Scripture teaches. One last passage. 2 Peter 2, 7 through 9. I'll give you a second to look that up. 2 Peter 2, 7 through 9. This is the context of... Uh, God judging false teachers and the unrighteous. Uh, And in this passage here, Peter is saying that if God kept these others from trial, meaning from and not out of, if God kept these others from through trial, then Peter says, how much more will God keep you, meaning through trial? It says this, verse 7. And if he, that's God, if he rescued righteous Lot greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Verse 9, if he rescued Lot, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Notice, notice it says that God kept, uses that word kept, Lot, just like he says how to rescue the godly from trials, to keep and rescue our parallel ideas there. And here's the kicker. (laughs) Lot wasn't just kept out of a trial as if to avoid it. His wife died during his trial. And if you read the story in Genesis later on, there was a lot more trial to come in his life still. So Jesus never promised freedom from pain nor trial. But he does promise to faithfully keep his word to us. The promises like that in this passage in Revelation at this point just begin to rain down in, in sort of fantastical terms. Remember, it's, it's a picture book. And it tells us a picture of what it's like to, to receive these promises. Keep reading the rest of the passage here, starting at verse 11 in Revelation 3. He says, I'm coming soon. That's an encouragement. I'm coming soon. So hold fast. It's another way of saying keep. Keep what you have. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize, no one may grab it from you. No one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, there's your new name, by the way, believer in Christ. One who conquers. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Remember, the door to the kingdom is open. The door to the temple with God is open. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. <clears throat> Friends, for the, for the Christians here in Philadelphia, being kept through trial required keeping God's word close. And it means the same for us. Being kept through trial. Being encouraged in hard circumstances. Having the joy that lasts when happiness ends. When life is frustrating. Keep God's word. When relationships are are fractured and are divisive and your marriage is tough, keep keep God's word. When your loneliness in your life 
is a constant cloud. Keep God's Word. When addiction controls you, when debt is an overwhelming mountain, when answers are not clear, keep God's Word. Let's pray.